This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to this, a midweek edition of Radio Parallax. We have had so much to cover with what's going on with this pandemic and some political shenanigans, which are oftentimes the same thing, or certainly these days intertwined, let's, let's put it that way. Anyway, this show is going to try and do some other stuff that we used to do on this program, things like science topics, things like other stuff. <laughs> We're going to start out with that, and then the second half of this show today, we will probably work our way back into politics, and uh, I guess if we have to, back into to COVID-19. There's so much going on. But right now in front of me, I have a copy of The Week magazine, which got me thinking. It, uh, it's got a picture on one side of the page of Barack Obama giving a speech, uh, a eulogy for the late Representative John Lewis that apparently was uh, stirring people up. The Guardian notes that Obama hammered President Trump and Republican efforts to suppress voting rights and decried the authoritarian tactics used by police and federal agents against protesters. Now, the way the week will usually report on something like this is it'll give you a description such as the one I just read from The Guardian. Then the second block, the second paragraph, it will then usually present something that's quite the opposite, the more conservative viewpoint. In this case, they cited... NewYorkPost.com's John Podoritz. The Podoritzes are like arch conservatives. And uh, they said Obama's speech was wildly irresponsible. And in the third paragraph, they find something that's sort of in-betweenish. At least that, that's often the pattern you see. I just thought it was curious to flip over to the next page. And here's another black political leader, chief of state. In this case, Zimbabwe's Emerson Mangagwa who, um, well, he's getting a little bit different coverage than Obama. In fact, let me quote from it. In the first paragraph, the week noted that, well, journalists tortured, activists raped. Zimbabwe under President Emerson Mugabe is as bad as it was under Robert Mugabe. In this case, they were quoting Panash Chigwadzi in NewZimbabwe.com. I presume he's writing this overseas. Peace noted when Mugabe took power in 2017 after a coup in the ruling ZANU-PF party brought an end to Mugabe's cruel 37-year rule, the newcomer promised economic revival and democratic reforms. But, after declaring a state emergency in March to combat coronavirus, Mugabe and his ZANU-PF cronies have used the pandemic as an excuse to loot funds, clamp down on press freedoms, violate human rights, and arrest activists. Three opposition members, lawmaker Joanna Mambombe, activists Cecilia Chimbiri and Netsai Marova, were abducted at a May 5th demonstration by unidentified men, raped and beaten. Instead of investigating their claims, the state arrested them for an alleged fake abduction report. This is a very sad commentary on what what is going on in that beautiful country of Zimbabwe. But I did note, to my amusement, that the next paragraph, as was the case with Obama, then gives you the counter view to the fact that he's a really bad guy. Noted the state-owned Zimbabwe Herald, the government acted prudently in cracking down on protesters. The would-be protesters are at best dupes of foreign interests, at worst mercenaries paid by Western donors. Though these demonstrators claim to be against corruption, when they started putting up hashtags like ZANU-PF-MUST-GO, it was clear they meant to attempt a coup. No country would allow gangsters to remove a sitting government illegally, so of course the ringleaders had to be arrested. 
Well, there you have it, two opposing views. I think as a business model, the week's method of putting out one point of view, countering it, and then finding some sort of balanced views is, is very good for marketing because everybody finds the part that they like, go, well, that's what I agree with, no matter which side of the issue they're on. I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we love The Week magazine. It's very succinct. It gives you a broad, uh, broad reach and things that it covers. We probably couldn't do this show without it. But it does underscore how you have to assess the source of news that you are reading to try and evaluate how reliable it may be. This is a pretty basic idea, but it's been our observation here in the year 2020 that a surprising number of folks are just taking things they're told at face value, despite the fact that in many instances it appears to just be pure propaganda. And of course, sometimes when you're reading about something, you realize you have a very incomplete story. There's more to the story. Generally, it's good to find out what that more may be. Case in point right now, I'm looking at a copy of The Economist talking about that bomb blast. Well, I'm sorry, not bomb, but that explosion that took place in Beirut. A lot of folks assumed it was a bomb, but it appears it was not. The British publication noted in an article about it that in 2013, Lebanon seized a cargo of ammonium nitrate used in fertilizer and explosives for mining and quarrying from the MV Rosas, a Russian-owned vessel plying the seas from Georgia to Mozambique. The chemicals, all 2,700 tons of them, were stored in a warehouse at the port. The magazine notes that the Oklahoma City bombers used just two tons to kill 168 people in 1995. And while some officials warned of the danger of keeping a giant bomb next to a population center, their pleas were ignored. I guess my question is, did Lebanon plan to do some mining and quarrying, or was this stuff supposed to be used for fertilizer? And in either case, why was it piled up in a warehouse and forgotten about? I know, Mr. Malone, I do not accept the answer because it's Lebanon. Sadly... We do note Lebanon is a not completely functional country. It's been torn apart by various factional fighting over the decades. Clearly, it is still not whole. Clearly, there's all kinds of corruption. Listening to NPR a few days ago, I was sort of shocked to hear that a lot of Lebanese were saying, don't give money to relief organizations coming to Lebanon because it'll just be hijacked by people in power and things will be resold, etc. So I don't have any idea how it is we should be supporting the Lebanese in their time of crisis. All right, we're going to try and keep things light when we can here in today's program. And But, uh, dear listener, if you if you plan to make a contribution to help them, I'm sure you will find a way. But do your research as to where the money's going. All right, we're going to try and keep things light when we can here in today's program. And that's a tall order in 2020. But here's a piece from New Scientist I, I feel like delving into. This comes from their feedback section. The magazine noted in its July 18th issue that every year, as you're probably aware, the Annals of Improbable Research magazine awards the Ig Nobel Prizes as a wry counterpoint to the annual Nobel Bonanza in Stockholm. They note that in 2005, the Ig Nobel Prize for Fluid Dynamics was awarded to Victor Benomeyer Rochow and Joseph Gall for, and we quote, the Contemporary New Scientist article, a theoretical analysis of penguin poop propulsion. They note, the work in question, however, didn't delve sufficiently deeply into the subject for the taste of two other researchers. Earlier this month, Hiroyuki Tajima and Fumiya Fujisawa uploaded a paper to the archive preprint servers in which they point out that Maya Rochow and Gal 
apparently both neglected to consider the arcing trajectory of a penguin's motions, satisfying themselves exclusively with the horizontal component of said motions. Redoing the calculations, and you know, some people just have too much time on their hands, while also taking into account Bernoulli's theorem and viscosity corrections via the Hagen-Poiseux equation, they came up with a penguin rectal pressure of 28.2 kilopascals, 40% greater than previously measured. Mr. Millen is quite upset about this because this apparently caused him to lose a bar bet. But noted new scientist, and I just can't resist this, translating this into human terms, the researchers calculate that a person with the same rectal pressure could projectile poop a distance of 3.13 meters, prompting the Japanese researchers to add he slash she should not use usual restrooms, they point out. We're obviously missing some information here about why penguins need to evacuate so forcefully, but I have to confess, that is research I'm not going to do. And since we're on the topic of aquatic animals, and, and I guess we are, the subsequent issue of New Scientist, July 25th, noted that apparently sea turtles often get hopelessly lost on their long ocean journeys. They cite research done at Swansea University in the UK and uh, quoted researcher Nicole Esteban as saying, we were impressed that the turtles were able to find small islands, but their navigation is crude. Green sea turtles spend most of their lives in one area feeding on seagrass and shallow waters. Every few years, they migrate to breeding areas that can be thousands of kilometers away, spending a few months there before returning. During four migrations, Esteban and her colleagues put GPS trackers on 33 female green sea turtles after they'd nested on the Indian island of Diego Garcia. As the turtles can't feed in the open ocean, their likely aim is to head straight home, but apparently few managed it. Turtles returning to remote atolls and islands often missed their target and ended up swimming further than needed. The tracking suggests that they navigate long distance using a basic mental map and a crude sense of compass orientation. They set off in the right direction and eventually realize if they've gone too far. And I think the turtles are being sold a little short here. Sure, the turtle misses the tiny atoll in the middle of the Indian Ocean, but it corrects its mistake, turns around. We look forward to some follow-up research in this area. And in an era that is really crying out for good news, we want to do some follow-up on a good news item we reported some months back. It turned out that it, well, it's still good news, it just may not be as powerfully good as we might have hoped. And again, we're going to go to our good friends at New Scientist. Same issue as the last. They noted that beetles with larvae that can digest polystyrene might help solve the world's mounting plastic waste crisis. Expanded polystyrene, better known to you and me as styrofoam, is used to make cups and boxes. It's increasingly clogging up landfills and polluting oceans because it isn't biodegradable. Until recently, no organisms were known to break down polystyrene, but Hyung Jun Cha at Pohan University of Science and Technology in South Korea and his colleagues have discovered that the larva of a northeastern Asian beetle can do the job. When the researchers gave the larva nothing to eat but expanded styrofoam for two weeks, they consumed about 34 milligrams of plastic each. They note the bacteria in their guts converted the long polystyrene molecules into CO2 and chemical fragments that were excreted as droppings. The larvae are probably able to degrade the plastic, 
They speculate because they normally feed on rotten wood, which contains cellulose and lignin molecules that have similar structures to polystyrene. That's according to the researcher Cha. So on the one hand, this is good news. You take some beetle larvae, you'll feed them styrofoam, and they can chew it down and start the process of biodegrading it. But the bad news is each beetle can only manage 34 milligrams. Now keep in mind an aspirin tablet is 325 milligrams. And actually, that's just the weight of the aspirin. But then, you know, it's possible to have lots of beetle larvae. You know, when I think about how when we buy things these days and it comes packed in styrofoam and, and none of that's biodegradable, this, this, this is frightening. We may possibly need to ban it in the not-too-distant future lest we have every beach on Earth covered in polystyrene. And how about this science article? There's been much debate about when the first Asians came over the Bering Sea land bridge to populate the New World, the Western Hemisphere. There's some data now suggesting that humans may have made that trip as early as 33,000 years ago, which is 15,000 years before the most widely accepted date. New Scientist notes the first American settlers were probably homo sapiens, like us, but we can't rule out extinct groups like Neanderthals or Denisovans. These settlers probably entered from Northeast Asia across a land bridge linking Asia and Alaska. This was submerged by rising seas when the ice sheets melted at the end of the last glacial period, which is why you can take a boat up to Point Barrow, Alaska, if you're so inclined. Anyway, Cyprian... Ardelean at the Autonomous University of Zacatecas in Mexico and colleagues have spent the last decade excavating Chiquihuite Cave in Zacatecas and found almost 2,000 stone tools buried in sediments in the cave, including blades, points, and scrapers. No human remains or DNA have been found. The youngest samples are at least 12,200 years old, and the oldest may be, oh, I hate when I come to that in the science article, may be 33,000. 1,150 years old. Anyway, there's been a debate about when the first humans got here, and I'm not sure this is going to settle it, these findings from the cave in Zacatecas. So I have no advice for you, Mr. Millen, on how to make book on this at the limelight. And we hope you caught a few weeks back uh, some photos that were on the web of how these Starlink satellites that Elon Musk is putting up ruined astronomical photos of the comet Neowise. In one example, astrophotographer Daniel Lopez sent up his equipment in the Canary Islands to snap a time-lapse image of Neowise. His final image featured 17 separate frames captured over 30 seconds, marred by streaks of light from SpaceX's Starlink internet satellites. Yes, if SpaceX and OneWeb get their way, they're going to put up more satellites, I think, by a factor of 10 than we currently have orbiting the Earth. In response to all this, the International Astronomical Union said recently the night sky should be considered a non-renounceable world human heritage. And they're hoping to drop guidelines on satellite brightness for submission to the UN in the next year, noting that we have to move fast because these private companies are moving faster than space agencies. We've talked about space junk on this program in the past, and, and it's, it's widely believed that once we reach a certain point, which I'm certain, you know, SpaceX will get us there, there's enough satellites in orbit, there's going to be collisions with space junk that will cause whatever gets hit by this piece of debris to break up into yet more pieces of debris. And this will continue in a chain reaction until the Earth is orbited by more junk than we can safely send up space probes through. We're mad as hell about this. We're going to keep talking about it. 
One thing we haven't talked much about when it comes to space is cosmology. Whenever I'm flipping through the channels and I come across uh, some putative astronomic program, looking back at the Big Bang, a Big Bang is a subject that fascinates people, and I watch scientists explain how in, you know, in, in the first 10 to the minus this or that of the Big Bang, uh, this happened, and then, then, then the, next, uh, the next interval of 10 to the minus this, then this happened. We liken a lot of this stuff to an analysis of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, where we're certainly heartened by the, again, I'm still dealing with this January 25th issue, it's a good issue of New Scientist, that said in a headline, you might think we know a lot about the universe's first fraction of a second. That just isn't true. And the author in this case is Dan Hooper, describes as head of the theoretical astrophysics group at Fermilab in Illinois, and author of At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds. I don't know. I think this is pretty wacky stuff. I mean, <laughs> this article includes such, qu such questions to be probed as, what color was the Big Bang? Personally, I've always leaned toward teal, but perhaps it's closer to chartreuse. I'm just not sure. To the question, how do we know the universe is 13.8 billion years old? The answer given back was, if you'd asked cosmologists this 20 years ago, we'd have gotten a wide variety of answers. Some might have said 8, some 20 billion. But over time, we've measured things better and better. And there's total agreement that it's within a small margin of error around 13.8. Oh, good, good. And then they asked a question about dark matter, which I don't even, I don't even want to address. But I did like an article titled, The Dark Matter in Your Diet. Another piece from our favorite new scientist, article by Graham Lawton. Subheadline to this one is, there's a giant hole in our knowledge of what we are eating and it's time to hunt for some answers. I had to laugh that near the beginning, the author said, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that garlic contains actual dark matter, that percentage of the material in the universe that physicists say is there but can't observe directly, but it does contain what we've been calling nutritional dark matter, the thousands and thousands of compounds that are in foods, but which until very recently were totally unknown and which may be affecting our health. We're not going to go into this in great depth today because the subject of nutrition is one that really is an area of dark matter, but suffice it to say that it's dawning on people that there's a lot more going on than we have fully appreciated. The piece notes that if you search for garlic in the USDA database, you'll get served up 58,000 foodstuffs that contain it, ranging from whole raw garlic to processed foods like instant noodle soup. The entry for raw garlic lists 67 macro and micronutrients, some quantified down to micrograms per 100 grams, or concentrations less than 0.00001% says that may seem detailed, but it's far from comprehensive. For example, it omits some of the quintessential flavor compounds in garlic, such as allium, A-L-L-I-I-N. Uh, no, and I know nothing about this compound either. But notes the article, there's a general problem across the USDA database. It tracks only common nutritional components in many foods and so omits many rarer ones. The USDA began filling this gap in 2003 by adding 38 flavonoids, plant compounds associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease, to its existing panel of 150 components. But that's as far as it went. Others have now put together databases that contain about 70,000 nutritional compounds, 
which is nearly 400 times more than the USDA database. For example, the USDA lists 67 compounds in in raw garlic, but Food DB has 2,306. Pretty interesting stuff, but, you know, a long way from being definitive on on any of it. But I, I was intrigued by one little section of the article that said there are many parallels between our understanding of nutrition and health and our knowledge of genetic epidemiology before the human genome was sequenced. In pre-genome days, only about 1.4% of human DNA, the chunk that codes for proteins, was considered important. The other 98.6% was considered junk DNA, although many pointed out that if it was junk, (laughs) the body should be getting rid of it because it doesn't do it any good. The article notes the idea of sequencing the whole genome was often dismissed as a waste of time, but we now know that about two-thirds of sequences linked to disease are in those junk regions, many of which are stretches of DNA that control the actual expression of genes. We hope to continue to follow this story as well. It's pretty interesting stuff. And to finally get away from new scientists, we have uh, something to do with nutrition in the broad sense of the word, that it's irresistible for radio parallax. Here's the title of the article, which appeared in getpocket.com. The Forgotten Drink That Caffeinated North America for Centuries. The piece by Ben Richmond notes that every morning, every day, 85% of Americans alter their state of consciousness with a potent psychoactive drug, caffeine. Their most common source is the roasted seeds of several species of African shrubs in the genus Coffea, coffee, while other Americans use the dried leaves of a species of camellia plant from China, tea. Americans love caffeine, but few realize just how ancient the North American craving for caffeine truly is. North Americans have been enthusiastically quaffing caffeinated beverages since before the Boston Tea Party, before the English founded Jamestown, and before Columbus landed in the Americas. That is to say, North Americans discovered caffeine long before Europeans discovered America. Casina, or a black drink, The caffeinated beverage of choice for indigenous North Americans was brewed from a species of holly native to coastal areas from the tidewater regions of Virginia to the Gulf Coast of Texas. It was a valuable pre-Columbian commodity and widely traded. Recent analysis of residue left in shell cups from Cahokia, the monumental pre-Columbian city just outside modern-day St. Louis and far outside of Casina's native range, indicate it was being drunk there. The Spanish, French, and English all documented American Indians drinking casina throughout the American South, and some early colonists drank it on a daily basis. They even exported it to Europe. I had no idea. Any of you out there heard of this? Anyway, the article notes that as tea made from a species of caffeinated holly, casina may sound unusual, but it has a familiar botanical cousin in yerba mate, a caffeine-bearing holly species from South America, whose traditional use, preparation, and flavor is similar. The primary difference between Casina and Mate is that while Mate weathered the storm of European conquest, Casina has fallen into obscurity. The picture accompanying this article shows someone sipping some Casina at the Department of Agriculture some years back. They're using a little bowl with a straw out of it that looks remarkably like the devices that you'll find down in Argentina or Uruguay from which people sip their yerba mate. 
Anyway, the stuff that produced this caffeinated beverage is better known today as Yaupon. It's mostly planted as an ornamental throughout the southeastern U.S. Recent years have seen a handful of small-scale growers selling and promoting casina for consumption, typically under the name Yaupon Tea. Cafes in a few scattered southern locales are selling it and pushing for a revival. The piece notes this is not the first call for a reappraisal. For over a century, botanists, historians, and even the USDA have periodically drawn attention to the absurdity of Casina's disuse in its native land. And here's where we get into some rather interesting sociology, I think. Asks the article, So why was a plant of such well-documented potential, which seemingly should have developed into a domestic alternative for expensive tea and coffee imports, ignored for so long? What happened to Casina? So that over the years, it's gone by many names. But one name gave the tea a permanent black eye that diminished its commercial prospects. The first Spanish colonists in Florida, who according to one contemporary account, drank casina every day in the morning and evening, knew it as Tea del Indio, or casina. The English in North Carolina called it Yaupon, a term borrowed from the local Indian language. Upon export to Europe, which they started doing because, hey, it's got caffeine in it, you know, wakes you up. It got marketed in England under the names Carolina Tea and South Sea Tea, and in France as Appalachina, likely a reference to the Appalachian people. And then, unfortunately for the beverage, the eminent British botanist and horticulturist and director of Kew Gardens, William Eitan, described as gardener to his majesty, is credited with giving Cassina the scientific name it still bears to this day. Ilex Vomitoria. Vomitoria translates roughly as that which makes you vomit. Now it turns out Cassina does not make anyone vomit. First-hand accounts of indigenous people drinking Cassina don't mention vomiting at all. Nevertheless, an association of Cassina with vomiting persisted. Sources, sources such as the Oxford English Dictionary erroneously describe Yalpon leaves as having emetic or purgative properties, keeping alive the myth that Cassina makes you throw up. Something else that didn't do it any good was the fact that it was so abundant in the east coast of North America that it could be drunk by the poor. Hence it became déclassé. An 1883 encyclopedia entry on Cassina summed up this new state of affairs when it stated Cassina is still used as a beverage by the poorer classes in North Carolina. During the Civil War, when coffee and tea became very scarce, both the rich and poor in the South turned to Cassina. After the war, when coffee and tea again became available, Cassina had required yet more negative associations with war, hunger, and defeat. Anyway, the article closes by noting the extent to which coffee and tea are now being marketed as ethical, fair, and environmentally friendly, as well as the surging popularity of Cassina's cousin, Yerba Mate, would seem to indicate that Cassina's time has come. I mean, it grows right here in America. Anyway, if any of you out there are working on this, uh, how to get it before the public, a caffeine-rich substitute for tea or coffee, we'd sure like to hear about it. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Right now, we need a coffee break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. Got lots more. No. 